We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Would you turn in your Bible to Esther chapter 6 this morning? Beginning in verse 1, it says, That night the king could not sleep, so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bithanah and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. Now Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight in, ought to honor more than me? Hmm. And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king was, has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest on its head. Then let this robe and the horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken." But he's kicking himself now for saying that. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. All right, I think we're all set to go here. Let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 5, please. Luke chapter 5. The New and the Old is the title today. We're starting in verse number 27 and going uh, to look at a good bit of the rest of this chapter, if not all of it, Lord willing. 
in the time that we have remaining this morning. Jesus brings uh, a new way, and that way was not comfortable for those who uh, he introduced it to, at least for many of them. And that way is to call sinners to repentance and to interact with them actually in order to help them to see their need for that. Prior in in chapter 5, we learned that although mankind's situation is desperate, we saw that with the leper. Remember, he was full of leprosy. We saw it with Peter because he recognized, hey, I'm a sinful man, O Lord, just get away. I can't be too close. But we saw that Jesus is willing and able to help such people. Chapter 5, verse 13, uh, after the leper asked, if you're willing, you can make me clean, he stretched out his hand, he touched the leper, Jesus did, and made him clean. Uh, He's eager and capable to forgive sin. We saw that with the paralytic who was let down through the roof, and uh, he forgave the man's sins, and as well proved by his miraculous work that he was able to do so by raising the man off of his bed. These works witness that he is the Son of God and can indeed forgive sins. Uh, As God the Son, in fact, he is able to forgive because sin is really done against him. And uh, he was able thus to uh, forgive it because he is God. You know, the Pharisees ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, good question, but there he was uh, enfleshed before them. Now, Jesus continues this pattern of dealing with sinners In verse 27, let me just read a few verses here. It says in Luke 5, 27, After these things he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. Did I say there was? There were a great number. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Imagine the attitude they were asking that question with. Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus calls this man Levi, And that kind of opens up a whole, could I say, can of worms for uh, him to deal with these scribes and Pharisees. Uh, This man, Levi, is also known as Matthew. You can see Matthew's self-report in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 11 of this incident. Uh, He could have omitted that from his gospel, you know. Might be nicer not to have recorded for all of history that you were a tax or customs agent despised in the eyes of your people. However, it's extraordinarily useful for us because it teaches us that God uh, addresses, helps, provides aid to the lowest uh, rungs of society. And so we're grateful for Matthew being here. He was despised as a thief and a traitor the lowest of the low in the eyes of Hebrew society. But Jesus uh, wanted him for a task and wanted to save his soul and use him as one of his apostles. Jesus summoned and he immediately left everything. But I don't think that this summons is without a background, like Jesus just happened to come along and see, see him. He could have done that, but... I suspect that he had passed by that way before, 
Matthew had heard of Jesus, had seen, had heard of his miracles, perhaps was uh, curious about what was, uh, this Jesus was all about, perhaps had heard some of his teaching as an as a, uh, educated and well-informed person. He probably would have been aware of things. And um, I don't know how you think of Matthew as far as his kind of what he did, but he was probably uh, along uh, the way, like if you, you know, drive down 94 past Jackson there or towards Jackson, you come to the way station. You know, if you're a certain kind of vehicle, you have to go into the way station and get checked out. Well, he was at the custom house along the, along the trade route, and if you brought goods in or out, well, guess what you had to do? You had to pay the duty, and nobody likes to have to do that, but they did have to under Rome, under Herod, uh, Herod Antipas and all the rest of them in that region. So uh, that's why he was so unliked. But in any case, however much background there was, this was a radical departure from what he was doing in the past. You know what was going to happen as soon as he left his, his post? Somebody else was going to fill it. Do you think he was ever going to be able to get it back again? Highly doubtful. Yeah, he was not going back. Like Moses leaving the pleasures of Egypt. Can you imagine the angst in Moses' soul as he considered at 40 years old, up in his, you know, getting into his 30s and thinking, man, I've realized I have a Jewish background. My people are being uh, oppressed. What am I going to do? Am I going to sit here and rise up in the ranks, or am I going to suffer with the people of God for a season? Or before him, Abraham, Abram. Up and out of Ur of the Chaldees, Go. Just leave. I'm going to show you a place where I want you and your people to be. What a radical change. This change, this, this stark difference, should be the default picture that we have in our minds about what Christian discipleship is. Okay? Are you with me? Christian discipleship is accurately described here by being convicted by the Spirit of God to leave our old life. It's not adding on Jesus as an accessory to our old life. It's a total transformation, an entire change. It's replacing our old life with his new life. It's a major change in career. I said in my notes it's a turning over a new leaf, but it's actually a whole new tree. It's not just a new leaf. And so Matthew left his job at the customs office. Someone else would fill it. He wouldn't be able to go back. When you leave your old life and follow Christ, you don't go back to that life. Now, in thankful response to the Lord, look at what Matthew does in verse 29. He gave a great feast or a banquet in his house. And I don't know exactly Matthew's motivations or Levi's motivation here. It doesn't tell us, but I suspect that uh, at least this, this, did, this accomplished two things. One, it gave Jesus an opportunity to be with sinners, but also gave Levi an opportunity to invite his social circle and his friends to find out what his new life was about and what he, uh, what he had decided to do. He was obviously wealthy. He had a lot of friends in his social circle of tax collectors and other general sinners, we'll call them, men and women. And uh, the banquet provided that opportunity for them, the Lord, and Matthew to be a testimony and a witness to meet the Savior. 
But the Jewish leaders didn't like what Jesus was doing. It doesn't seem like they were invited, but they too often crashed the party, so to speak, in the Gospels, uh, stuck their noses into the business of others. And they asked about this in a critical-sounding manner. To me, this is not an honest question. This is a question with a sneer attached to it, a question with a critical spirit. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And that launches us into a section of the text where we have two questions, and Jesus answers both of those questions. The first one in verse 30, the second one in verse 33, why did the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? A lot to learn here in these few words. So these questions give Jesus an opportunity to answer and give some miniature parables of explanation. And so let's look at them, and and hopefully we'll demystify a little bit about what he's saying if you have wondered what he is saying. The first question, again, is about being around sinners. The scribes and Pharisees' question is like uh, uh, asking a doctor, why do you work at a hospital? instead of going to an entertainment venue. Okay, I'm not talking about the doctor on the sideline of an NFL game now. I'm talking about the normal run-of-the-mill doctor who has uh, patients to see. The answer is obvious. The doctor works his trade where there are people who need his help and who know they need his help. In the spiritual realm, it's similar. You can help people when they realize they need help, but self-righteous people are like people who who persistently say, I don't need a doctor. I don't go to doctors. I'm better than that. I don't need their quackery. By the way, Jesus did go to eat with the Pharisees too. You read that elsewhere in the gospel. So I guess he was going to eat with those sinners as well. But they don't think of themselves that way. You remember one of the Pharisees gave him a dinner and he went there. So similar thing. But Jesus gives his answer, and he says, those who are well have no need of a physician. That's part one of the answer. Now, we should not construe that answer to suggest that there are, in fact, people who are well, except if they've already gone to see the doctor Jesus, okay? There are not people who who exist apart from him who are well, who need no spiritual help. There are no such people. Let's just get that through our minds here. He's not saying that. But there are people who think themselves to be well. They think they see. They think they have life with God. They think they're okay. They're the ones who never do a cancer screening only to find out and after it's too late that they have stage four. I speak with spiritual words. The person who says, I don't need God. I don't need to hear about sin. I'm not a sinner. Give me a break. We'll find out when it's too late that they have a terminal illness. Jesus, so please, don't be somebody who thinks yourself to be in this category. I don't need help. Everybody needs God's help. 
to be changed, to be forgiven. We'll talk more about that in our afternoon service together. Jesus' answer in the second part, he goes on and says, uh, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, they do need a physician. And so that expands on what we've seen thus far about Jesus' desire to cleanse those who are dirty with sin. He has come to call sinners to repent. Notice that in verse 32. Just let that sink in. Let your eyes focus on that verse for a moment. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I I do believe he's talking about people who think themselves to be righteous and have no need. But I do call sinners to repentance. If that's the Lord's mission, then do I have to ask the question, what should our mission be? You know, Jesus went and uh, spoke with people who were on the, well, they were kind of elevated in this particular case, elevated with their wealth and their social status as, uh, you know, in the Roman eyes at least, as tax collectors. They were low in terms of other people's estimation of them. But Jesus went and, and, and worked with them and Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and uh, he would talk with people who were down and outers, everyday people, uh, prostitutes, all, all kinds of people he would talk with to minister to them because his ministry was to call sinners to repentance. So we cannot have the attitude that, uh, you know, that kind of person doesn't really fit in our church. They can't come in here. We couldn't tolerate that attitude because all kinds of sinners need to hear the word. The very kind of sinner that you're thinking of right now that's repulsive to you, admit it, That kind of person is the kind of person, just the kind of person that Jesus died for. As sick as they are, they're not actually sick. They're dead in transgressions and sins. But let me just say it that way, as sick as they are, as disgusting as you might think their sinful lifestyle is, that gives you no place to shut the gospel out from them. So if you were to have the attitude like the Pharisees had, you would say, well, you know, why do you go and, and, and talk to those people? Then you're behaving just like those Pharisees are. So um, he says, I've, called, I've come to call sinners to repentance. Now, I've, I think I've done a decent job, although we can always do more of it, to, to define what these terms mean. What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be uh, a sinner? What does it mean to be repentant? Go all into all the detail about what that means and what it means to repent and all of that. But let's be real for a minute. It's easy for me to talk about the definitions and you know, go over the theology of it and talk about the Greek words and the etymology and what they mean and all that, but people listen you know what it means to repent, right? You know what it means if you're living in sin. You know if you're living in sin. We know that we're not right before God and ourselves. We know we need to turn away from that. Our consciences are active enough to tell us that we do have a darkness within, 
Again, we'll speak about that this afternoon. We know that we're not right before God in and of ourselves. And like dissing our earthly parents, we all have, in a way, dissed our Heavenly Father. And we know that we need to talk to Him and confess our sin and apologize to Him and thank Him for providing for us to be forgiven. So forget all the fancy definitions and cut to the chase. If you need to repent, you need to repent. If you've got sin in your life, you need to cut it. You need to get rid of it. Even if you're, you know, you think, oh, I'm a Christian here. I don't have to worry about what pastor's saying. He's just talking to the one or two or three people that don't know Christ yet. No, I'm talking to all of us. All of us need to repent. All of us, if we're Christians, we're believers and we're repenters. And if we're not a Christian yet, of course we need to recognize Obviously, we are displeasing God by our attitude. So, he's come to call sinners to repentance. Second question. Then they asked him, verse 33, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? So the background here is that there's a kind of a normal pre-programmed practice. You know, uh, remember the guy that was, uh, went up to the temple to pray and he says, you know, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, even like this tax collector guy over here. You know, I fast twice a week. Well, what good does that do? You know, it just makes you hungry that day. Um, pre-programmed. They, they looked at Jesus' disciples and said, oh, you're having too much fun. And thus, you're not as religious as, as those of us who do this fasting ritual. The disciples of John were joined into this questioning according to Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Some of them had gotten off the, the trail, so to speak, off the tracks, and were apparently doing as their pious teachers had instructed them to do, uh, that you know they're supposed to fast regularly. That's how you please God. They were both uh, present at this feast that Levi held, and obviously when there's a banquet going on, you're not in fasting mode. After he became a follower of Christ, he wanted to celebrate. The Pharisees evidently had this regular fast and prescribed prayer times. We talked about the one who fasted twice a week. They prayed uh, out in the open, in public places, to be seen by men. They used empty repetition and thought that would gain a hearing uh, before God, they made sad faces and appeared to be fasting so they would garner attention for themselves. That's not in the law of Moses. The law of Moses prescribed a fasting for the Day of Atonement. Uh, probably that's what it means when it says afflict your souls or deny yourselves in Leviticus 16 about the Day of Atonement. Uh, but they had added many more religious fasts to their calendar that they were practicing, which were not part of keeping the law. They were embellishments on the law. Now, there's nothing wrong with fasting or prayer per se, obviously, but they were carrying on with their fasting to an inordinate extreme. They had devolved their religion into a series of programmatic rituals instead of a faith and fear relationship to the God of Israel. You know religious systems that do that today, that have devolved, so there's no real relationship there. There's just rituals that you do X times a day or you have to do 
you know, mass X times a month or you have to go to confessional or you have to do this or you have to do that. Rituals that don't do anything to mortify the flesh or to help us gain standing before God. By the way, when we pray, do we do so to be noticed by man or to appear spiritual? Do we pray ritualistically at bedtime and before meals with repetition, with an expectation that it will be heard by God when our heart is not into it? So Jesus answers in verse 34, and he says to them, can you make the, listen to this, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? So the picture is of a man getting married and all of his friends are with him. At which wedding have you seen there to be a fast? (laughs) Doesn't happen, does it? There's always food regarding this celebration. There's always the enjoyment of God's good gifts. And so they're participating in a time of rejoicing and gladness. Just like at a wedding feast, it would be totally out of place for those friends to abstain from eating at the feast as if they were mourning for the new groom. Poor guy, he just got married. His life is over. (laughs) You know, he's got a new boss now. (laughs) That's not what people are thinking about when they think about a a wedding. Jesus answered the question, they, they, they cannot fast. Obviously, they cannot fast. A pre-programmed ritual that does not match the reality of one's heart is not at all useful. If the external situation or the real internal feelings of the heart do not match the ritual, the question is, why are you doing it? Are you being genuine and honest? You know, there's, a, there's an organic flow of life, and times will come when you feel like you need to fast. You with me? I'm not talking about fasting for health reasons, you know, intermittent fasting and all that stuff people talk about today, not that. We're talking about fasting for religious purpose, for uh, focusing our attention upon God, for setting aside the purchase and preparation and eating and digesting of food so that we can focus on prayer and devotion to the Lord and being in His Word. We do not do things for just no reason or just because they're on the calendar. There would be a time in which the disciples would fast. Verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Those days. So the groom will be taken away. This is a foreboding word. Do you know what it means? It means Jesus is going to be arrested and tried and crucified and buried. He will be taken away from them. They didn't want him to go. Certainly Peter didn't want him to go. He tried to use his sword to stop the whole show, but that didn't work. Jesus had to go to the cross. He had to die for our sins. So the idea is that the disciples will naturally fast because they're in sadness and they will deprive themselves. I mean, think of Mary going to the tomb. What was she doing when she went there? Weeping. Um, People watching Jesus die on the cross. The uh, disciples gathered together after the crucifixion and they're just in sadness 
the two disciples who walked on the road to Emmaus, why are you walking along and, and expressing this sadness to one another, the Lord Jesus said as he came alongside of them. They were fasting then, probably. They weren't much hungry. Somebody had died. Their leader was taken away from them. And so they would fast as a genuine reflection of their heart, not as just a pre-programmed ritual. Now, uh, just pause for a second. We get the question today about fasting for the modern-day believer. And the thing, interesting thing is when you read the rest of the New Testament, you don't see a whole lot about fasting, do you? A couple portions talk about fasting, but that's about it. It's not highly emphasized at all, not emphasized at all. Now, Jesus didn't condemn it. He only condemned the hypocritical version of it. But it is never commanded for the believer that I can see. It's always voluntary. You have a couple references in Acts and 1 Corinthians 7 indicating a voluntary fast for a short period of time with spousal agreement. Some fasts were involuntary. These were due to periods of persecution. Paul suffered some of those, right? Fastings often had to be withheld from food. Remember when they were on the boat in Acts 27? They didn't eat for days because they were so beside themselves with fear. Their bodies just didn't want the food. And we often see fasting associated with concentrated prayer times uh, in distress or in need, especially in the Old Testament. I'll say another word about that in a moment. Jesus didn't answer the matter about prayer. Uh, They asked, why do the disciples of John fast and make prayers? I think prayer was kind of a side issue. It wasn't really the problem. Uh, he certainly wasn't a, a kind of you know, allowing for ritualistic prayers. He modeled prayer for his disciples. He taught prayer for them. We can find that in other portions of Scripture. But notice it says there in verse 35, they will fast in those days. What are those days? Can you put a beginning and ending on those days? I just did, but I didn't say it specifically. It's when Jesus was taken from them and crucified and buried. But then after he rose again from the dead, did they have, were those days still in operation at that time? No, those days were over. It was just a period of just the few days in which the Lord was taken away. But what happened after that? There was great rejoicing because Jesus came back to life. There would be no fasting then because why? The groom was back with them. In fact, we see the disciples eating during the period after the resurrection. Remember, they went to go fishing. They had fish for breakfast and all of that. We saw in John 21 and in Luke 24, they were eating with the Lord himself as he appeared to them. In addition, Jesus, although he left this earth, That's not the days in which he was taken away. That's the days in which he left, and what did he do? When he left, a few days later, he sent another one just like him, another comforter, another helper, another guide, another of the triune God to be with his people in a a different way, but in a similar way, in a kind of replacement, if you will. The Spirit would forever be with believers, and therefore today... 2023, on December 10th, we're not in those days. 
You with me? So Jesus' words about fasting here do not apply directly to us because he has not been taken away from us. We have his co-worker, the Holy Spirit, living inside of us. We do not need to have a feeling of deprivation because he is in heaven interceding for us and the church is not in mourning. We come every Sunday in part because this is the day of the week that he rose from the dead. This is the first day of the week, despite all attempts to make Monday the first day of the week. Sunday is the first day of the week. Okay? So in general terms, we are called to joyful Christian living. Of course, there will be seasons of grief and loss and mourning, and it's appropriate to fast in those times, whenever you wish to spend more time seeking the Lord in prayer, for example. But the general pattern of the Christian life is one of joy because the Lord is alive. He's with us. He is not going to depart from us. He's not going to forsake us. We can be sure of that. And so we can live with joy. And I encourage you to to do that. Remember, that's the baseline. A lot of us live, however, um, defeated because our eyes focus on other things, don't they? The troubles that we have, the people that are you know, thorns in our side or the situations that aren't right or the IRS or, you know, all these other things that we don't like, you know, the tax man speaking of Levi. Um, The baseline of our life needs to be one of joy because of Christ, not because of all this other nonsense that's going on out there and around. We get all eaten up with the politics and the evil in the world and all of that sort of stuff. But Christ is still in charge of everything. He's in control. He has never been out of control, never taken his hands off the wheel, so to speak. It's all going to be fine in the end. We who believe have hope. We don't need to be you know, glum and ho-hum all the time. And we ought not be. Now, the Lord goes on to give some uh, more explanation of this, the old and the new. The old way of the scribes and Pharisees was not to call a sinner to repentance. You know what they did? They would shame the sinner and treat them poorly. Remember the parable of the uh, lost son, Luke 15? The older brother thought, this guy is a real first-class louse. And he doesn't deserve to be brought back into the family. He's dead and gone, finished. He's dishonored the father, and it's over. He's not even good enough to be brought back on servant status in this home. That was the attitude of the Pharisees. Once you've done that, you're written off, out of the will, everything. Jesus brought a different way to them. He brought a way which he illustrates by the father in that parable who is longing for his son to return home again as a picture of returning to God, as a picture of of receiving the love of God and being saved. That boy was not saved when he left the home. He was a sinner. He was not submissive to his father at all. He was not honoring to his dad. He was a biological son who was an unsaved son. And when he came back to the family, it pictures a sinner coming back to God. I've wandered far away from God, 
But that boy came home, picturing that he was born again at that time. When he came to his senses in the pigsty is when he realized he needed to repent and turned to God. Turn back to his father, too. Well, the Lord says in verse uh, 36, he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and the piece that was taken out of the old does not match. Well, what do we have here? We have a parable, a small miniature parable, just a real short one, not a long story. It's a saying of varying length designed to illustrate a truth. Uh, through comparison or simile or illustration or proverb. And the first parable would be common to the original audience about patching a worn garment. See, we don't do that today. We just throw away and put new, right? Easy for us. We just go to the store and buy a new one. You know, most we would do is probably cut off the jeans and make them into shorts if we can sew and rehem the bottom. Otherwise, they just get all that stringy stuff on them, you know, and then you don't like them either. So then you go buy shorts instead of making them. Well, anyway, what do you have here is you have somebody who's got a hole in their, their knee and you take a, a patch from a new garment and you put it on the old one. Well, that's crazy because, you've A, you've ruined the new garment. Why do you cut out a good piece of fabric out of the new one? And the, the patch doesn't match, you know, as much as you want to try and, you know, the pants are stonewashed and the patch is stonewashed and you put them together and they don't match, even though. And the unshrunk patch from the new garment is going to tear away from the old when it shrinks and make the hole worse than it was before. In other words, you cannot mix the old and the new. The illustration that I thought about this was from Acts chapter 15. Remember in Acts chapter 15 what the issue was? Uh, Some of the Jewish people who claimed to believe said, you must be circumcised in order to be saved. Okay, They're taking from one garment, cutting out a piece of it, and trying to put it onto the Christian garment. The Old Testament law, take a piece of that, patch it together with this, and we're going to make ourselves a little patchwork quilt here. Because we like that. That's how we've always done it before. Similar thing in the new and old wineskins. He illustrates with something they would understand. Um, in verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins and both are preserved. The wineskins were made of animal hides that were cleaned and scraped and they were put together in such a way that they would be uh, liquid tight. When, When new... These were elastic enough to take the stretching of the fermentation process. But if you took an old one and put new wine into it, it was, you know, how old things get kind of brittle and they tear more easily, dried out perhaps you could say. They couldn't handle the stress of the fresh wine being placed in them, and so both would be ruined. So you try to stuff the new into the old or the old into the new, and you get a problem that just ruins the both of them. You also have the issue of the taste. Uh, No one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. So the new and the old don't mix, and people who are accustomed to the old like the old. Popular wisdom has it that wines are very good after they've aged a while. 
Most wine is drunk fairly soon after its production, but if you're accustomed to an old type or a type that you like, then you won't be easily persuaded that a new one is better, even if it's objectively and certainly the case. Something about the new taste is not as satisfying as the old taste because you're accustomed to it. So these Pharisees don't want to drink in the new doctrine of Christianity because they don't like the taste of it. They're, they're accustomed to the old, the old way of doing things, the old traditions, the, the old rabbinic things they've read in their Talmud and, and have propagated for years and years and been taught as if they were the gospel. You know, we know, we know the old and the new don't go together, do we? You don't put gas in an electric vehicle, okay? You don't, uh, you know, you, you can't upgrade the computer to Windows 11 sometimes, you know? It doesn't have enough horsepower or whatever. It doesn't meet the, the requirements, you know? The new Coke doesn't taste like the classic version. You know, before you were saved, you had a certain preferences in music. Well, you can't shoehorn those into the worship of the church now. It doesn't work. So, you know, and this is not just saying, hey, try something new once in a while. You might like it. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, Jesus has a significant message for his audience. The new way that he's bringing is a major break from the old way. It's not a patched up version of the Old Testament Jewish religion or the perverted version of it in Judaism in the first century, which was an offshoot of that Old Testament faith. As correct as that Old Testament faith was, as incorrect as the new version of it was in the first century with the Pharisees' way of doing things, none of those were going to work, neither of those rather, were going to work with the new life in Christ. And those who were accustomed to the old were not going to be liking the new. The new way has come by revelation of God through his son. Jesus is teaching here something new and different. Uh, Obviously, what he teaches has roots in the old, and it's a fulfillment of the Old Testament, but it it grows up beyond it. If you try to constrain or contain the new in the garb of the old, it just won't work. The old wineskins burst under the pressure of the new way of salvation, as it were. Not that there are two ways of salvation. Don't hear me saying that at all. The salvation, salvation in Christ and God only came in Christ. It's only by faith. It's only through grace. It's always ever and only been that way. But you cannot shoehorn the old fasting and rituals into Christ's new way lest you attempt your attempt at a hybrid fails and you're left with a mess spilled all over the place. You have to upgrade This means following Jesus' new teaching and leaving behind the old as outmoded. I've heard before when when Jewish people are told this sort of thing, they become offended because they're saying, oh, you're saying what we have is not complete. It's not done. Yes, that's indeed what we're saying. They, They are expressing this very thing. They like the old. They don't want to hear about God's new dispensation. The old legalism must give way to the new way of redemption. Now, I'm talking about the old legalism of the first century version of Judaism, not the old, old version. Judaism, as it properly was practiced, never had legalism in it. 
But because there were these rituals of sacrifice, people began to trust in them, not in the God of them. You can add, you know, you can do feasts and holidays and maintain cultural forms all you want if you've come out of Judaism, but you cannot think that you're making your own atonement or earning your own merit before God by doing that cultural stuff. All this took some time for the truth to sink in. Um, you know, remember Peter and Paul had a conflict with one another. Peter's going back to the old dietary constraints. Peter, even earlier than that in chapter 10 in, in the book of Acts, in chapter 11, is saying, hey, I, I can't eat any of this stuff, Lord, you're telling me to eat. Well, God says, look, you're not to call any man common or unclean. You go to a Gentile just as well as you go to a Jew, just as well as you go to a Samaritan. You have to bring the gospel to all of them. Perhaps you have grown up accustomed to a certain religious or irreligious teaching. Perhaps you have grown up Catholic or Mormon or Muslim or JW or Jewish or even atheist. Those, my friends, are the old wineskins of your life, the old wine, the old garments. Today should be the day that you realize that there's something new and different available. Salvation through no work of your own, provided by Christ in his death and resurrection. Take the new garment, the new wine, the new taste, and make a clean break from your old beliefs and follow the new way. Let it, let it grow on you. Don't be averted, uh, you know, have an aversion to change just for change's sake. You've got to ask yourself, is Jesus really the Messiah? Did he really rise from the dead? If so, if he did all these miracles and he's able to forgive sins, and I know I have sin, why don't I go to him to receive that forgiveness of sin? You can't find forgiveness of sin in animal sacrifices. You can't find forgiveness of sins from Allah. You can't find forgiveness of sins from Confucius or Buddha or uh, any works-based system. Did I miss any? <laughs> I pretty much covered it. You can't find forgiveness in any of those. So if you need forgiveness, which we all do, and you know it, then you must come to Christ. Ultimately, he's worthy of your trust. He will never lead you astray. Now, this is not a matter of preference, as if you can continue to enjoy the old wine without considering the new. It's a matter of genuine religion and true morality. Jesus did not come to bring a new option. He brought in a whole new system and urges you to come out of your old and into his new. Behold, the old things are passed away. All things have become new in Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help our hearts to be in tune with what your word says, uh, transformed and changed. Lord, as we spoke earlier, uh, maybe... This message of repentance has touched a heartstring or two. Maybe the message of having to abandon the old wineskins of false religion has touched someone. Would your spirit work on those individuals in their needed way today? Bring them closer to yourself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.